Welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency, while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast brought to you by The Rollup, a media and education company that provides high quality, actionable insights and information on all things Layer 2s, Rollups, DeFi, scaling solutions, new protocols, juicy alpha, and insightful research. We're excited to share with you the latest trends and development in the DeFi space so you can stay informed and ahead of the curve. Without further ado, we will jump right into this episode with a brief update on some of our current sponsors. Buffer Finance is a non-custodial, exotic options trading platform built to trade short-term price volatility and hedge risk of high leverage positions. They are a leader in the arbitrum charge taking over on layer twos and totally understand the potential of blockchain technology and how it's transforming the finance industry. They are proud to support DeFi by design. If you're looking for a platform to trade short-term options, look no further than Buffer Finance. With their innovative tech, easy to use platform, they're at the forefront of the options tech in arbitrum. Visit their website, buffer.finance, and take a look at all their options. ZKX is a leader in the decentralized derivative DEX market on StarkNet. StarkNet is a cutting edge technology built to help scale Ethereum using ZK rollups. They understand the potential of scaling, blockchain tech, and how it's going to change the world of leverage trading. ZKX protocol is happy to be on testnet and will be on mainnet very shortly. Check out ZKX protocol on Twitter, as well as on Crew3 to get more information about what's going on on StarkNet. going on guys welcome back to episode 95 of the DeFi by design podcast here today with our boy rob as well as arjun from connects and we're going to be talking about the multi-chain world seeing a lot of activity flourishing on rollups as of recently um, and seeing a bunch of new chains come out as well as some of the uh, kind of older alternative layer ones still stay alive so it's been a, a really interesting time in in the kind of world of which chain do i call my home um, you know, I've had a lot of fun on rollups recently, had a lot of profitable opportunities, and the same can be said about a lot of different other homes. So today we're going to be talking about using connects to, you know, travel from one home to another and how that looks, some of the vision. And yeah, I'm here with Rob. Rob, it's been a little while since the pod, but we're back in action. How you doing? Yes, sir. Good morning. Doing well. Uh, pleasure to be uh, pleasure to be on today. We, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about this analogy, or at least we have talked about it in the past, where like the chains are like islands or cities, and then bridges are like the roads between those cities that uh, people could travel and transfer um, from one home to another. Um, and Connect provides that infrastructure uh, to travel between cities. So, you know, I think conceptually, everyone kind of understands like how to travel. Um, bridge ux is is one of the better you you user experiences that is on the ecosystem right now um technically like we've seen some kind of uh we, we've seen some exploits right so i'm interested to hear how connects uh protects against those um and then kind of what what the thesis is in the future for multi-chain um it, it's something that you know kind of started slowly and then and then suddenly um, now there's several chains there, there was just, you know, one or two early on. And I think that trend will continue as we have sharding, more chains pop up. We'll continue to have uh, more and more, uh, multi-chain universe and, you know, bridging and infrastructure between those chains becomes even more important. So Arjun, it, it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Um, 
you know, maybe, maybe you could start about um, how you got into blockchain and then we can kind of, you know, let the story unfold on how you got started with Connect. Yeah, for sure. Um, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me here. Um, it's great to be on this podcast and great to, to chat with everybody about it. Um, how did I get into crypto? Um, so I originally had a background in physics, uh, like theoretical physics. Uh, I was planning to kind of pursue academia in that direction and then realized that I wanted to have like be able to work on something that had like more meaningful impact in my own lifetime um, to a larger number of people. And um, at the time, I was really interested in like this is back in like 2016. Um, I was really interested in public goods and I'd had a lot of like exposure to like peer to peer protocols um, in like the early torrenting days. Uh, but I'd never really been that interested in Bitcoin because I was never very interested in like money and finance. Um, and uh, and that was when I came across Ethereum just uh, at, at like a hackathon. Um, and I think that was kind of when things clicked for me where I was like, okay, we have this, we have all these like very deep societal issues around, uh, you know, corporate monopolization or, um, you know, sovereign effective monopolization, right? Large, large organizations, um, both corporate or government uh, related that are, um, where they're the desires of their constituents so the individual pop, like people in a, in a population are not really don't really match well to like what ends up happening at, at the government level um and uh, and to me it, it always felt like okay what we're missing is like a third option um you know something where you're not having to pick between some mega corporation and or some like you know authoritarian government you get to pick some option that is actually legitimately democratized um, some option where individual people have like the agency and authority to make decisions in some system. Um, and the best example of, you know, a digital globally accessible public good that we, that I'd kind of come across up until that point was the internet. Um, and so when, when I first encountered Ethereum, uh, again, 2016 ish, it blew my mind because in my mind, I was like, this is the platform that allows us to basically expand on the key thing that the internet pioneered, which was create a globally accessible uh, network for communication to now create other kinds of public goods that let us do more interesting and more powerful things. Things like coordinating with each other on a local or global scale um, and doing that in a, in a cheap way that is also provably fair. Um, things like uh, being able to give access to financial infrastructure, things like being able to uh, put like social graphs and things like that on chain and like basically it, like have those be kind of uh, available to everybody so that you don't have monopolization um, happening around like things like Facebook. Um, very abstract idea. Uh, I, you know, smoked a lot of weed at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> still do, but you know, that was, it was very much a like early phase where I think at the time in 2016, most people who were in the space were still kind of thinking about these very, very abstract concepts from a very deep philosophical level. Um, and so it's kind of cool to see how things have progressed since then. Um, in, uh, in 2017, I started wanting to become really more deeply involved in the space. Uh, I, uh, started a couple of projects. Um, I actually, like helped kind of, uh, kick off a couple of like early infrastructure things in the space. And then, uh, eventually realized that there was this need to build, uh, tooling that allowed users to interact with Ethereum more easily. Um, uh, this was kind of second half of 2017 when the ICO boom was starting to pick up and uh, started Connects with the initial idea of let's find a way to make it very, very easy for people to interact with dApps. Um, and pretty quickly, it became very obvious that at the time, it was completely impossible for anybody to interact with any dApps because Ethereum just didn't scale at all. Um, you know, the, the prospect of like, I need to pay $70, $80 to buy a $10 ticket, like NFT ticket was obviously ridiculous. 
Um, and a lot of the early projects that we were working with um, at the time had exactly that problem. You know, we couldn't even build any sort of tooling or products for them until they solved the scalability issue. And so we became one of the first projects doing R&D on L2s. Um, we actually built one of the first L2s in the space on Ethereum uh, for a project called SpankChain, which is an adult payment, uh, payment processor slash cam site platform. Uh, they were one of the only projects with any traction, actually, back in 20, 2017, 2018. Um, and we built a state channel network, a conditional payment platform um, that they used at the time to do uh, tips for Camstars and then also payments. Um, uh, over the course of the next like two to three years, um, we continued doing a lot of R&D with um, the broader L2 ecosystem. Uh, most of the people that were in that ecosystem, uh, or at least the researchers that are working in that ecosystem, have now gone on to create most of the rollups and chains that we know of today. So that included, you know, the founders of Matic, uh, that include which became Polygon, obviously. Uh, that included uh, the people in Plasma Group, which eventually became Optimism. Uh, that included the founders of Arbitrum um, or Offchain Labs, which obviously developed Arbitrum. Um, and uh, and through the course of that, we realized that there was this actually very very interesting problem uh, that people weren't thinking about a lot, which was in a world where there end up being multiple different layer two options. How do you actually uh, once again abstract away the complexity for users to have to interact with many of them? Um, we, we were kind of very early to this thought process and we were very lucky in that we turned out to be quite correct. Um, so in, in 2020, we, we started kind of uh, playing around with this idea of doing you know, transfers between rollups without introducing trust. Um, and in 2021, the whole multi-chain ecosystem exploded. Um, and all of a sudden this became like a huge and very pressing need. Um, that's kind of a zero to hundred of like how we got here. Um, where we're going is, uh, even from 2021, our key belief has been in the same way. So today, when you use the internet, you don't really need to think about, you know, you, you use an application. You don't really need to think about like what's going on behind that application. Uh, as a user, you, you know, if you go and interact with YouTube, you don't have to think about how YouTube is pulling data from APIs all over the world or how it's interacting with like Google's dis like distributed database infrastructure in the background. You're just using an app. Um, and we think that dApps kind of need to get to the same place. Like the whole concept of, I'm on, I'm on optimism and my funds are here and I need to go and use this application running on Polygon. So I need to bridge over there to use it. That, that notion is just like bizarre to anybody that's not in the space, right? It's, it's like very web one, like we're in like the early web one days, you were like, I'm connected to my local uh, college, uh, you know, network and I need to use the internetwork to connect to this other network somewhere else. And I have to like manually plug in that other networks, like routing address so that way I can get there and then and then I can interact with their stuff like that's that's kind of where we are right now um, and uh, and I think I think the way that we get there is by allowing for application developers to have tooling that in the same way that the internet works today interact with resources that live on multiple chains uh, resources meaning data funds state users um, that live on multiple chains all at once um, without having to really think about it um, so in the same way that you know you use YouTube today, um, allowing you to interact with, I don't know, Ave in a way where Ave is just in the background routing your uh, uh, LP deposit into to whichever pool is providing the best rate, um, rather than you having to specifically say, I want this to go to Optimism, I want this to go to Polygon. Um, and I think just kind of as a final note there, this really bakes into, you know, Rob, what you were saying, which is just, we are heading towards a world with many more chains. Um, that's not, that's not going away. Like, we connects our fundamental thesis and the thing that we're leaning into is that there will be a thousand rollups in the next like year and a half. Um, and when that happens, like 
are, as a user, are you going to know the difference between Arbitrum 1, Arbitrum 2, uh, Arbitrum Nova, uh, et cetera, et cetera? No, you're not going to care. You're just going to say, I want to use an app. That's it. Yeah, you're going to want deep liquidity and fast throughput and um, low slippage, low fees, and, and just be able to interact. And, and it goes even further uh, into the, the, the idea of onboarding people who aren't as technically savvy, who want to use bridges, um, and who really don't may not uh, care as much per se, or may not be as as deep in in, in the weeds on the technical side. It, it, it again, just ex expands the vision that you have of multiple chains, hundreds of chains, and basically uh, obfuscating a lot of the processes that you know we, let's call us DeFi power users, do on a daily or weekly basis into a more uh, you know just fluid ecosystem. Kind of makes me sad, man. It's like one day there's going to be no like hard work involved. It's just going to be all so easy and seamless. <laughs> yeah, that's when all the alpha dries up. <laughs> exactly. No, <laughs> precisely. And another part that's a little bit sad is like it kind of loses its home feeling because you're not really aware of like what what chain you're actually on maybe the the community transcends more into like just kind of like the group chats you're in and not necessarily like the actual chains but more of the the brand recognition will would be on the actual uh protocol uh like the the decentralized application rather than the chain yeah perhaps i mean i think um for what it's worth i think like what we're probably going to start seeing so like right now the the main end user facing application is investment right like that's like there really are very few things that exist in the space that are getting end user traction that are not uh like finance oriented or some sort of like financial upside oriented um and it's just it's just kind of the nature of where the space is right now is people people like believe in crypto and so they want to get involved and like if you're not a developer that is capable of building things the way that you're getting involved is by investing in things um uh, or if you're not in a position where you can go and join a company to work on things but i think lens like, is probably the only one yeah um but even even with lens right like i would i think the vast majority of people that are using lens are probably existing crypto users that are yeah. that are you you know it's like it's providing a use case that is not um like there's there's a ton of others too like you know that are providing use cases that are not you know perhaps not like uh financial appreciation or appreciation oriented but they're still targeting the same like core user group um and i think the reason for that is like if you really think about it right like what is the what is the end user use case for for like cloud? It, there isn't one, right? Cloud computing as an industry, the the end user facing use case, like the the use case was let's go and integrate into a bunch of infrastructure that allows people to build more powerful web applications, which can then themselves like interact with end users. Um, and I think that that's something that like uh, I, I think that's kind of the the weird place that we exist right now is like. We have a lot of these like incorrect signals from the market which say, oh, well, users actually care about the brands of the chain, but really they they only care insofar as their investors like and the developers care about the brands of the chain and the communities and stuff like that. Um, but ultimately, like some end user that's out there that doesn't really care about crypto at all and just wants to use an app, they're only ever going to care about the app. That's not that's never going to change. Yeah, that's interesting. That 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 takes the idea of like the fat pro, fat protocol thesis, or like the layer one or, or the base layer thesis, and kind of reverses it on its head as far as just powerful apps that will scale. Because if you think about it, it's like 
in, in the reference that you make with the cloud, there's there's tons of different apps on the internet from Facebook all the way to various softwares, things like this. And each user doesn't think about Internet Explorer or Firefox or Brave. It's more of like, you know, I'm going on Instagram or I'm going on um, you know, Telegram, right? So, um, yeah, I think I think what you, what I see Connects providing for the ecosystem is a means of uh, allowing end users to use whatever protocol or app that they choose without necessarily minding where it is only for whatever use case that they have. So if it's a financial one, right, they can be, they can use the app in the place where they can have the, the biggest gain uh, potential or best risk to reward ratio or, or, or kind of the highest yield, right? If it's a community-based one where, where the largest communities are, uh, NFTs, kind of all a similar process of thought where bridges like connects are just basically a, a pathway. But I, I still find that in the current stage, of the market, there are, I think, users that are currently here, which is is obviously nothing uh, compared to 2021, and also nothing compared to like say five years out. Um, I, I think they still have a home. Like you know, there's still three to four chains that they use on a daily or weekly basis. All right, they they'll trade on GMX on one chain, they'll use Aave on one, they'll buy NFTs on one, they'll use a specific yield app on on another, they'll trade options potentially on one. Um, so, you know, I think that there's still something to be said about uh, users finding their own homes. Um, and again, Connects just allows them to kind of test out different basically areas to, to live. If you think about Ethereum as a digital nation state and then kind of plant their roots, um, you know, how they like. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's, that's kind of the big sort of asterisk here is like, we are still at least a half a decade away, if not longer, to, to getting to the point where this stuff is like fully abstracted. Um, and it's it's going to be, I mean, it, I think everybody always just like grossly underestimates how long infrastructure takes to build and how long some of this lower level stuff takes. Um, kind of getting back to your point, like this is this is part of the reason why like, this is part of what this this whole space unlocks, right? It makes it very easy to go and build applications. Like you, you can go and fork and deploy an application in minutes now, rather than having to like, take a, you know, like months like you used to, um, both in this space and out of this space. But then the flip side of that is like, the infrastructure itself needs to needs to be so stable, it needs to move at a slow enough pace, it needs to be conservative enough that it can then support that level of innovation. Um, and so I, I really do kind of firmly believe, you know, we're still a ways out. It's a, it's a good like directional indicator for what we should be trying to lean into and trying to find ways to continue to like abstract away chains. But uh, fundamentally, it's going. It's not. It's not something that's gonna gonna happen overnight. Um, there's gonna be like some awkward in between steps. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, we have we have, for example, some some things that we're, we'll be rolling out soon um, that allow like tooling that allows for applications to enable their infrastructure to be interacted with from any chain, so that they, you know, as an application, you don't have to be like, oh, I can only target users from my chain. I can, you know, you, you're massively broadening your market, but. Again, like there's still going to be some gotchas where users are going to be like, until users have like a wallet experience that actually supports all of the chains, they're going to be like, oh well, my you know I my my funds transferred across chains to interact with this app, and now I'm entered into like a position on this chain, but like how do I actually track that position on that chain? Well, now you have to go and perhaps use something like the bank or or Zapper instead to do that rather than your own wallet. So it's going to be yep. like kind of uh, incremental progress. Yeah, it's slow and steady. And I think account abstraction is, is something that's big that, that's happening, which for those of listeners who are still a little on the edge, because it's kind of confusing. I'm going to do a video about it this week. But 
effectively think of your your MetaMask wallet as like almost like a wallet in your pocket. And then think of think of an account abstraction, like a smart contract wallet as like a smartphone, like a Venmo. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's a little bit more uh, advanced than that, but it's that's the kind of level of step um, that I think that will take for user experience as well as basically onboarding more people to the experience. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, just kind of more of that front-facing uh, technology takes longer to build than just forking Synthetics's code and, you know, dropping a, a new app or, a, you know, a, a new, um, you know, kind of pool or something like that. But I'm curious, uh, kind of shifting gears here, unless Rob's got something super pressing. Well, I've got, I've got one more just kind of like similar as far as why, Arjun, why, why you think the complexity of the user experience is causing the industry to only build financial applications? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because right now, blockchains and this space don't scale enough to actually build anything else. <laughs> Um, because if you think about it, right, like we're, we're basically operating like a fucking TI-83 calculator, right? It's not, we're not like, yeah. like the, the kind of code that you're writing on chain, like is just, it's like 600 lines of solidity code that you're deploying and it's costing you like $10 per interaction to use. That's, that's, that's never going to work for any real, real application, right? For any like real use case that goes beyond, um, beyond something that's like just fundamental, very basic, very simple public good. Um, I think the the broader idea here is like you want to allow people to like this industry allows people to build these like very, very sophisticated public goods eventually. Um, and in order for those things to be fully credibly neutral public goods, they need to not eventually they need to work to work towards not actually having any centralized dependencies at all. So that means, you know, being deployed on chain, having the compute run on chain, having storage run on chain, even having the UIs be served from chain. So you don't have the situation where like a UI gets shut down. And so now nobody can interact with the app anymore. Um, until we get there, like we're, we're going to get there. In fact, the cross-chain stuff is probably going to be what gets us there. Like the combination of being able to interact between chains and being able to deploy many application-specific rollups very quickly that can have their own kind of parameters around, hey, this one's better for compute, this one's better for storage, et cetera. So the combination of those two things is going to make it so that you can have these like full stack decentralized applications. But until we get there, like we're sort of just kind of, we're basically just kind of like hacking it with certain things that we know can like, we know can provide value today and we know can like be credibly neutral that are quite basic. And like at this stage, it's still very, very simple stuff. Yeah. Makes sense. Like lack of scalability prevents these full scale applications that serve use cases beyond financial ones. Exactly. Like I think eventually yeah. and pretty soon, I think what we're going to start seeing as this space now, I mean, we, we have the scalability now with, with rollups and with cross-chain communication, we can actually do this today. Um, what we're going to start seeing is stuff like decentralized Wikipedia with like legitimate incentives for for like high quality editing, right? We're going to start seeing, you know, basically any any situation where you're like, okay, there's this thing that exists as a public good and that everybody interacts with that is, you know, uh, that should be globally accessible and shouldn't be owned by any singular company. You can probably put on chain and it could be quite a useful thing. Um, so things like Google search, for example, right? You can, you can eventually, I mean, this one's a little bit further away, but you could eventually have like an on-chain map of the internet and allow people to search, like do a graph traversal through that map. Um, and that becomes a replacement for Google, um, just like the search aspect of Google. Um, and again, yeah. credibly neutral on-chain public good. Yeah. And bring AI into the mix and then, and then things get really weird because yeah. like AI is replacing search. 
and you could bring AI like onto a blockchain and make it credibly neutral. And I guess people could maybe like the incentives, you know, you could, you could benefit from training it or using it somehow. Yeah, exactly. Any situation where you're like, I mean, I've actually, I've tweeted about this once, but I think the playbook here is really simple. It's like, if once this, once the technology in the space gets to the point where it's mature, basically it's going to be like a, some, uh, one of my, one of my friends, uh, Amin, founder of Spankchain and has done a bunch of other stuff in the space as well. And we've collaborated quite a bit, um, but he like his, I love his terminology for this, for what this space will eventually get to, uh, which is a decentralization laser beam. Um, you're basically just going to have, you're going to be able to play this repeatable playbook, which is going to be look for web two monopolies. Um, any web two monopoly you find, figure out what the means of production is for that monopoly. So what is the thing that they're actually building a moat around and decentralize that. So like Facebook, uh, it's their social graph, decentralize that into lens. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, Google, it's the search graph, decentralize that into like an on-chain, on-chain map of the internet. Shoot the decentralization exactly. laser beam yeah. right at the web two monopoly. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going <laughs> to be really money. cool if it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's super solid. Yeah. That, yeah that AI sounds, is crazy. Yeah. AI, AI will be another, I mean, we, we're, you know, starting to see the first monopoly there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the peer to peer nature of it then just paves the way for incentives um to be built around the moat and then like i'm almost glad that we we have like as an industry we have experience working in DAOs that are crafting uh incentives um at a at a scale for these financially based apps which require like pretty significant incentives sophisticated incentives before we start shooting this laser beam at like web 2 monopolies because we're gonna have to have like pretty um sophisticated incentive structures to overtake you know those web two monopolies or or compete with them yeah for sure yeah yeah agree like, super super uh super bear market podcast from the industry not being you know prepared and mature enough to we're all in this together yeah <laughs> i have the max amount of hopium in the bear and like in the in the bull i get so like if you, if we do this podcast again in the next bull market you're gonna see me be like the most jaded crankiest old man in the space <laughs> i don't blame you i mean all the all this all the bad stuff happens towards the tail end of the bull all the hacks the exploits and the, the drama and the and the crazy gains and just the absolute garbage but yeah it, it always comes and goes and i mean yeah on the topic of kind of the uh, the end of the bull and kind of the the jadedness, I think a lot of people in the industry watching this as well who've experienced it in some sort are, are somewhat jaded from from bridges because of the amount of exploits. I know Vitalik wrote an article about it way back when and different cross chain, multi chain. It's not a cross chain world; it's a multi chain or vice versa. And uh, I'm just curious from a more technical and uh, security perspective, what you guys have learned from uh, the the let's just say the failed or the the bridges that have uh, had, you know, some issues and, you know, what, what your vision and, and outlook um, and model kind of is for security for Connext. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's good that you, first of all, great transition into this because uh, uh, it is, it is a really important topic and you're totally right. Like I, I think everybody is concerned about this and scared about this because it is a big problem for the space. Um, I think bridges are, and like cross-chain communication is like the first it's like a, it's a primitive that is at the same level as blockchain, the blockchains themselves, right? Fundamentally, um, it's like you have blockchains and then you have the substrate that connects them. 
Um, it's something that people have been thinking about for literally decades now. And there, there really hasn't, like, we're start, you know, it's, it's been thought about a lot. It's been theorized a lot, but there hasn't been a lot of like practical application until recently because the demand just wasn't there yet. But of course, everybody was like, yes, it's going to get there eventually. Um, and arguably, this is also why rollups exist. Like rollups are explicitly a solution to this problem where like in, you know, back in 2017, 2018, everybody was like, okay, how can we allow for two chains to communicate with each other, Ethereum and a side chain, but do it in a way where there's no possible way for that side chain to, to actually like rug its users. And the only way to do that was to have the side chain explicitly require, re rely on Ethereum for, you know, ordering of transactions and for, for data availability, which then became a rollup. That was then, it was then called a rollup. Um, and so, you know, this, we've been kind of circling around this problem for a very, very long time. Um, I think it's not surprising that given where the market was, given how suddenly this became a problem, like a, like a user problem and not just a theoretical problem, how many hacks we've had. Um, like, I think it's, this is like, you know, when, when we were doing this with rollups, there was like several years before people even began using rollups where we had time to like work on, iterate on designs and think about like, what is the best kind of way for this to work? And by the point at which the first rollups started to be developed, rollups as a construction were finalized. Um, that was not true of Bridges. Um, in fact, when bridges start started to become popular in like early 2021 um, and started to be used, there it was nobody really understood how they worked at all, and there was just a myriad of different ways to do it. And the vast majority of the ways that it was being done were just fully custodial. It was basically like someone running either a single server or running like a multi-sig and relaying transactions between chains using that, and like not understanding why that's not good enough um, and why that's actually problematic, not just for users but also just for this ecosystem more broadly. I think now the level of sophistication is improving, um, which is good. Uh, being in a bear market where the hype is lower, where people actually have time to build and aren't just trying to like capture as much value as possible is really, really important. Um, and I think a big part of that is also that we uh, as Connext and I think more generally the ecosystem is now pushing towards a more sophisticated understanding of what cross-chain communication actually means um, and, uh, and how you can minimize the risk of it. So one thing that we've put forward recently is this idea that um, uh, you know, if you take this primitive, which is a messaging bridge, so of course, the word bridge means a lot of things to different people, um, you know, transfers of value, transfers of messages, etc. We're going to just refer to all of, like the, the base construction, which is a messaging bridge, which is let me get some information from one chain to another, you know, uh, it, that information could be related to a token transfer, but it doesn't actually matter. Um, if you take a core, like a messaging bridge as a core construction, something that we've observed over the course of doing research for the past few years is um, really that core model can, that core primitive gets broken up into three different layers. Um, there's transport, which is the core, the like simple process of getting data from one chain to another and not actually making assumptions about what happens to that data. Everybody ends up building this themselves, but it's, it's fairly simple. You know, you're just like, it's just kind of relaying um, effectively. Uh, and we, you know, you can use out of the box tooling for that, which is nice. You can use stuff like Biconomy, Gelato, et cetera. Um, so that's something where, you know, it's like a, it's a well-established layer of the stack and there's really no risk there yet. On top of that comes, how do you actually secure the message that you've now relayed across chains? Um, and that's the place where I think most people are getting tripped up. So historically, the way that this has happened is, you know, some sort of multi-sig. There is now a push towards more kind of like trust minimized mechanisms, things like light clients, you know, ZK light client implementations that allow you to do like more trustless communication between L1 chains. 
Um, and then of course there's like the roll-up bridges themselves, which provide L2 to L1 communication that is trustless. Um, but again, like these are all these are all things that are being built, right? They can still get hacked, and like all of the bridge hacks that have happened have not happened because of some trust. They so far at least they've they've largely happened because like someone's implementation had a bug in it. Um, so that really that verification piece is where like the vast majority of the security risk lies. And then lastly, on top of all of that, you have what's called execution, um, which is what Connects does. Um, execution is uh, when you, after you have taken data across chains and verified that it's that it's correct, how do you then do something with it on the destination? So, like from a developer perspective, you know, how do you call a contract on another chain? From a user perspective, how do you interact with the DAP on the on the destination chain? Um, and usually, any kind of application is built on top of the execution layer because you don't, as a as a DAP developer or user, you don't want to have to run infrastructure to do that yourself. Um, so again, execution not as risky, right? Again, it's it's a it's more of a fairly simple thing that needs to be decentralized for censorship resistance purposes and stuff like that. But it's not inherently providing the like, it's not contributing to what we call the the surface area of risk for for bridging. So let's focus all of our efforts on verification. Um, and this is this is kind of the way that Connects differs from everything else. Most and actually, I would say all of the other bridges that are live today basically just build this whole stack themselves. And then they implement their own verification layer um, that is used in the same way across all chains. Connects does something slightly different. What we do is we try to delegate that to whatever the best mechanism is for verification in a given ecosystem that already exists. So for example, um, if you're interacting with an application on Optimism, that application is relying on the Optimism roller bridge. There is no way that you are going to get out of trusting the optimism rollup bridge is going to work, right? Because fundamentally, if that construction fails, then the entire optimism rollup implodes. There's nothing that anyone can do about it. So for uh, communication that happens to and from optimism, Connext uses the optimism rollup bridge. We actually pass the message through the rollup bridge. And if something goes wrong, we fall back to the optimism rollup seven day exit window. Um, Similarly, on Arbitrum, we use the Arbitrum rollup bridge. On Polygon, we use the Polygon POS bridge because that's the one that is underlies all of the assets on that chain. Um, and then for other systems where there isn't a canonical bridge available or isn't something that's very, very established, we're working towards using uh, a basically like an aggregated verification approach. Um, there's been some chatter recently about this, this model called Hashi, which is a, a, a multi-bridge, multi-kind of verification mechanism um, that aggregates you know, a bunch of different options, aggregates like wormhole, succinct, et cetera. Um, to create one system where you would have to have the majority of all of those other bridges fail in order for some hack to occur. Um, and so from our perspective, we would then delegate verification to them. We would sit on top of Hashi, be an execution layer for them, and like fully have them control security of the system. We believe that by doing this, we like connects and, and in general, this space can get like a level of security that has not been seen at all so far for bridges and really is like the end state of how you can do secure communication between chains. So the in a nutshell, that is, if I'm sending a message from Arbitrum to Optimism, um, that is going through the Arbitrum roller bridge to Ethereum and then from Ethereum to the through the Optimism roller bridge to Optimism. There's of course some bells and whistles on that. We batch those messages uh, significantly to cut costs. Um, we do certain kinds of things to like help reduce the latency of those transfers. And then we have a system that exists on top of that to execute the message uh, on the destination chain. Um, and in many cases, that can happen immediately. Um, but in a nutshell, you're still kind of relying on the existing infrastructure that is already securing the space. Yeah, very interesting to hear you kind of break down the components of a bridge and how 
most people build the entire stack themselves. You guys focus on the execution layer and delegate the security part, the verification part to those who are building that natively, like optimism on optimism, arbitrum on arbitrum. And it allows you guys to focus on the fun part, which is the scalability. Like the execution is where like you can actually go and do something on that chain and not just not really like have to worry about the verification and the security part because you guys are plugging in the most secure bridge that you could possibly plug in because it's the canonical bridge on that on that chain. How do you like I guess my question is more like on the latency because does that mean like when you guys when someone bridges through connects they're basically you know bridging through the optimism uh verification client and you guys have to wait the 7 days like you mentioned there were some bells and whistles i guess i guess like this is probably about as technical as as we could go but like what what are some of the bells and whistles you guys put in to reduce latency when going through one of those native bridges yeah that's a really good question and that's that's actually the main thing that i think um one of the main pieces of value that we provide as an execution layer um, that, you know, where we, we do it in a way where, again, we're trying to minimize any additional security overhead. We're minimizing any additional trust overhead compared to the underlying bridges. But of course, like, you know, this is, this is part of the, the, like uh, the part of the secret sauce that connects is providing to a, a developer, like an application developer that wants to build a cross chain app. Um, so there's, there's two things that we do. Um, the first is what you mentioned about how do you deal with like the seven day, you know, optimistic rollup exit. Um, so the, the, one of the, there's, there's kind of a couple of pieces there. So first is the, the seven day window is, is a somewhat arbitrary. Um, it's and not just arbitrary. It actually represents something that's a little bit different than people think it does. Um, a lot of people believe that the rollup, when you, when you make a transaction on the rollup, that transaction isn't final until seven days in the future. That's not actually true. Um, your transaction on a rollup finalizes as soon as the rollup operator posts the next kind of batch of transactions, so posts your transaction to Ethereum. Because at that point, you and anyone else, including people that want to dispute the rollup, can verify that the sequencer has not committed fraud. So why do you have seven days? You have seven days because you need to give enough time for the entirety of the rollup state to actually be posted to Ethereum. Um, because the rollups are all pushing for EVM equivalency right now, that actually requires interactivity. It requires you to play this game where like, you know, say I'm disputing the optimism rollup, like I would need to, I'm a, I'm a person that's like watching the system has caught fraud. I would need to put forward the fraud and then optimism, the optimism sequencer would need to reply with some state. And then I would need to reply with more fraud. And they, you know, and like you would have to go back and forth on that several times to get to the point where the entirety of the optimism state is replayed on Ethereum to prove that something has gone wrong. For bridging, you don't actually need to do that. Uh, all you need to know is you need to know, is there fraud in the first place? Because if there is, you can fall back to the seven-day window to adjudicate where did the fraud come from. But you don't need to wait the full amount of time to know if there, like the kind of binary thing of is there even fraud to begin with. So what Connects does is we actually shorten that window significantly. Um, we wait for we we pass the message through the rollup sequencer. So the only way that fraud can occur is if the rollup sequencer actually commits fraud in the first place, um, which again, you would have to assume that optimism is actively committing fraud. Um, then on top of that, we wait 30 minutes. Um, and in that 30 minutes, we have our own system of watchers that is basically checking to see if any dispute has been initiated against optimism. 
Now it stands to reason again, because of economic incentives and because of the way that this, like the way that optimism works and the way that people watch the optimism rollup, that within 30 minutes, at least someone will have initiated the dispute. Obviously the dispute will take seven days to finish, but within 30 minutes, you know, has fraud occurred on chain. Um, and so we only need to wait 30 minutes when exiting the, roll the rollup. Um, and that's, and you can be very, very confident that that can happen with a very high degree of security because if something went wrong, in order for something to go wrong, you would need basically the optimism sequencer, whoever is sequencing the optimism chain at the time to commit fraud. And for all of the connects watchers to not notice that none of the optimism sequencer watchers or the, none of the optimism sequencer watchers also didn't notice. And on top of that, all of that needs to be worth it to the sequencer um, who is already putting up significant amount of value to stake uh, in order to sequence the rollup in the first place. Um, so generally speaking, we think that that's like, provides effectively the same level of security for the kinds of things that you're trying to do. Um, and this is kind of the, this is also like the, the core basis for how like cross rollup interactions, the core kind of thought process for how cross rollup interactions using a shared sequencer will work in the future. We can touch on that in a little bit, but um, that's a little bit more of a technical topic, but it, it kind of touches on the same, same core point. Um, the second thing that I mentioned that we do um, is we, uh, we do what is called fast execution. And this is a really interesting concept that we've created um, and that actually makes sense cryptoeconomically. So um, there's this model that people have been doing for a very long time called atomic swaps. Uh, atomic swaps is like how, the OG way that people were doing interoperability. Uh, on, you know, you had all these atomic swap protocols. Yeah, exactly. You had all these atomic swap protocols between like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And what you would do is you'd put up some BTC on Bitcoin into a multi-sig and then I'd put up some BTC on Ethereum. Uh, in a multi-sig, and then we would like basically, I would, I would like you would, uh, you would give like one of the signatures to unlock the multi-sig, and I would give the other one. Then we could basically atomically unlock both at the same time, so that you get your funds and I get my funds. Um, and there's no way for only half of that to execute. Um, what's really interesting is that the core idea is basically, I am paying. I'm basically letting you as a service provider. I'm letting you as a counterparty. Um, front me capital on the destination chain, right? Front the BTC to me on, on, on Bitcoin uh, in order to then receive my ETH. And I, I can ensure that that happens atomically because, uh, because of the mechanism that has been built underneath. That core mechanism can be generalized. Um, it doesn't just need to be for transfers of value. You can actually do that for any instance where the counterparty, so the person who you're interacting with is uh, wants, is, is, or sorry, the, any instance where the counterparty is able to call a contract on the destination chain. So let's, let's take a little bit more material example. Say, for example, I have my funds in USDC on Arbitrum and I want to trade USDC for ETH. I want to do it on Optimism because Optimism has the best USDC for ETH price. And it, even including the gas costs of getting there, it's worthwhile to do. Um, now, obviously, I could bridge and you know bridge out of Arbitrum to Ethereum, bridge Optimism, et cetera, or I could do something like bridge to Optimism and then swap on Uniswap there. Um, but all of those things are are just a bit of a pain in the ass, right? Like as a as a idealized user, I don't want to have to like think about any of that. I just want to go to Uniswap and use the app. So one way to do that is for me to uh, give you know say I'm swapping 100 100 USDC. One way for me to to do that is for me to put that 100 USDC into escrow. And for me to go to Rob and say, hey, Rob, can you uh, swap 99.5 USDC on Optimism to ETH and then send me the ETH on Optimism? And if you do that, programmatically, I can basically ensure that this, this, the 100 USDC that I have locked in escrow on Arbitrum will be paid out to you. 
Now, in effect, what I've done is I paid you as a service provider to just front capital for me and to do the transaction immediately. Um, and you're willing to do that as long as you get paid back, uh, obviously, with some fees. Um, that core concept is, is what we're calling fast execution. Um, it's something that, you know, it's like similar in, in concept to the fast liquidity model that a lot of people have been talking about for exiting rollups, but more generalized to any public facing function. Um, what this means from our protocol perspective is, and this is really cool, for any user facing interaction, our network can just execute it immediately. Um, the reason it can do that is because we have a network of off-chain liquidity providers and executors called routers. Those routers just front the capital to execute the destination chain transfer, so a Uniswap call, for example. And then they will get repaid by the protocol because there is a message that goes through the, the slow path going through Ethereum uh, from you know, Arbitrum to Optimism. And when the message arrives on Optimism, routers can basically claim against the funds that you paid them on Optimism or on Arbitrum to begin with. And so that is, that's like the mechanism of what effectively LPing on uh, a connects looks like those are those are the routers and then the fees on what our users and what our community sees on bridges or on connects the fees that they have to pay which is oftentimes higher leaving a roll up going to mainnet versus going from mainnet to uh, a roll up obviously outing gas fees um, as part of it, it that, that fee is what you just explained as well, is that kind of fronting process, um, you know, and there's, kind of, there's yeah. risk in there, but the, but the, uh, yeah, is, is that right? Or, or, or is that UI front facing fee separate from that kind of fee that the, uh, that the person who's fronting uh, earns? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good question. So there's, there's one little nuance here, which is there's two types of liquidity providers in connects. There's like the active liquidity provision, and they're not just providing liquidity, they're also doing a lot of like execution and stuff. So there's like basically the nodes in the network, which are routers. Um, and what they're doing is they're charging a five BPS fee every on, on any like fronting of capital that they do, um, which really it seems like nothing, but routers are still earning a, a pretty sizable amount and we're only just getting started. Um, so it's pretty awesome. Um, and then it's a really efficient business, right? You're basically like locking up like liquidity for an hour and you're getting five BPS on it. You can, you, then your liquidity unlocks and you can lock it up again. So like you can do that, you know, uh, you know, somewhere anywhere between like up, up to like 12 times a day or something like that. So if you have hundred K in liquidity, you're basically getting 12 times five BPS per day uh, in fees. <laughs> uh, and so over the course of a year, that's like, you know, uh, several hundred percent annualized. Um, <laughs> Uh, but there's a, there is another kind of liquidity provider on Connects, which is the passive liquidity. Um, this, is a, this is, again, a bit nuanced. Uh, the reason that passive liquidity exists in Connects is because we want to make sure that we're, you know, as a, as a user, you're getting the right, right asset. We don't want to give users like a wrapped Connects asset or something like that. So what we do is on both at the, at the source, like when you're getting started, and then at the destination, we'll swap from like the canonical asset. So for example, Polygon POS USDC into the connect specific asset which is next usdc uh, that can next usdc is basically a pointer to usdc locked on ethereum so what we're basically doing is pricing your chains liquidity against ethereum liquidity and then that next usdc of course is controlled by connect so we can burn and mint it across chains so uh, just i guess andy to to answer your question um, the fees as a user that you will see will be the 5 bps fee from a router and then you will see some like slippage associated with those AMMs. Um, that slippage could be positive or negative. Usually, I mean, it's a stable swap um, uh, with a, you know, which are obviously quite efficient. So like the, the slippage that you typically see is very low. I mean, we've done like 
very sizable transfers during like the USDC DPEG, for example, and like the max slippage that we saw was 0.4%. Yeah. Yeah. It's always really, really reasonable, even with size. Yeah. Um, you know, even, any, yeah, pretty much any chain as well. Um, the rollups in Ethereum always have really good liquidity for sure. I mean, from my experience. So, yeah. Um, Arjun, kind of wrapping up here. Uh, one last thing that we ask a lot of our guests as as we close up is if you had to explain Connects to one person or one entity, who would it be? And what would your quick elevator pitch be? Yeah. Connext is a platform for cross-chain application development. Right? We think uh, every single application in this space is going to at least be interacting with users from across chains, if not be natively deployed across multiple chains. In the same way that today, as an application developer, you build a web app that interacts with resources all over the internet, you will build a cross-chain application, like cross-chain app that will interact with resources all over the interchain. Um, uh, the way that Connects works is by delegating security to the canonical bridges of each ecosystem. So you're basically retaining the same like trust and security as the underlying rollup or underlying chain. Um, and the goal is that by doing that, we can provide the best, most secure experience for people to build this new wave of applications that is coming. Nice. Nice. You missed part of the question as um, who would you explain it to? But I'm oh, just going to go ahead and developers. say e yeah. Elon Musk. Oh, Elon Musk. Um, yeah. I mean, our ideal, basically our target <laughs> user is obviously we have the end user, Bridge UI and stuff like that. But like, in my opinion, I think bridges are going to disappear completely. Like it doesn't make sense for them to exist. It's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like, a, I don't know, it's sort of like email. Like it'll, it'll probably exist, but it's just like, eventually you're going to have chat baked into everything. And you're like, why should I use email anymore? Um, except yeah. for spam. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so I think our target, our target user, the people that we really, really want to talk to and the people that we want to interact with Connects uh, and build on top of us are developers, people that want to build new and interesting applications. Sweet. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Arjun. I really appreciate it. It was it was a great chat. Looking forward to see what you guys build um, and also see you guys out there in Lisbon, I'm sure. And um, yeah, man, take it easy. Keep on building. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast. And a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below, as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.